0: Word. <laughs> Jace, thanks for anointing the pulpit for me. I've not <laughs> it's gonna be special today. We're gonna to preach from an anointed pulpit. That should be good. Good morning. So glad you're here. Welcome. If you are watching us from home, welcome. Uh, we've been praying for you earlier that God will meet you in this time. Thank you for tuning in and listening to God's word. Um, listen, I'm really happy and grateful to Jace for, for assigning this Sunday for me to preach and suggesting we do it around a Christmas theme. So begin to think about the incarnation, that the title of the sermon today is The Incarnation, and which means in the flesh, incarnation in the flesh, which Jace described. It's the truth of that God became man in the flesh and blood. So our text would be, be in the book of Hebrews, so please turn, if you will, to Hebrews chapter one. Some of us may have had full meals yesterday, and the day before, maybe you ate more than you needed to. I know I did, and it takes a while to digest that. Well, it's going to be kind of like that. It's going to be a sermon that's going to take some digesting afterwards. And uh, so if you take notes, I commend that, but you won't be able to write down everything. So I'll have the quotes and the verses Online on Monday or so, I hope that uh, you can look at to further understand this. So, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. The description of the reality of the incarnation is the primary focus of the first two chapters of Hebrews, and we'll read both of them. So, buckle up. Uh, If we had more time, we could examine what they say about men and angels. Today we'll stick to the main theme of these two verse passages, these two chapters, which is also the main thing of the book of Hebrews, which is the absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ as the revealer and mediator of God's grace. That's what Hebrews is about. That's what these two chapters are about. First century Jewish converts needed to understand that Jesus is superior to the ancient prophets, superior to Aaron and the priesthood superior to Moses. And we'll see in chapter 1 they, they needed to understand that Jesus is superior to angels. And the writer of Hebrews does this by proclaiming that Jesus was God and man, the incarnation. So, the incarnation of Jesus Christ is called the greatest miracle and source of all miracles. The reality of God becoming man staggers the imagination, completely evades comprehension, and is received only by divine revelation. Without the incarnation, there is no possibility of salvation. Without a firm faith in the reality of the incarnation, there is no stability, there is no confidence in the Christian life. Over centuries, men have struggled to put this marvel in place. Two words and have fallen short as I will today. Although God's word is sufficient for us, we read their words not so much to dissect them or even totally understand them, but rather to sit and marvel and wonder at them. Let me read you, I think we'll have on the screen as well, a few quotes from over the centuries as men have tried to get their arms around this thing of the incarnation. Athanasius of Alexandria said around 300 A.D. Our Lord took a body like ours and lived as a man in order that those who had refused to recognize him in his superintendence and captaincy of the whole universe might come to recognize from the works he did here below in the body that what dwelled in the body was the word of God. Creation is sufficient for man to know there is a God, but only through Jesus Christ can they have that revelation. Augustine of Hippo, around 420 AD, said this, and this is amazing. He by whom all things were made was made one of all things. The Son of God by the Father without a mother became the Son of Man by a mother without a father. The word who is God before all time became flesh at the appointed time. The maker of the sun was made under the sun. He who fills the world lays in a manger. Great in the form of God, but tiny in the form of a servant. This was in such a way that neither was his greatness diminished by his tininess, nor his tininess overcome by his greatness. C.S. Lewis says this in the Grand Miracle, talking about how it came about. He says, talking about Israel, one people picked out of the whole earth, that people purged and proved again and again, some lost in the desert before they reached Palestine, some stay in Babylon, some becoming indifferent. The whole thing narrows and narrows until at last. He comes down to a little point. The small, small is the point of a spear. A Jewish girl at her prayers. That is what the whole of human nature has narrowed down to before the incarnation takes place. All that rode on Mary. Or be it from us to go without a Lord of the Rings quote. <laughs> Galadriel says, The quest stands on the edge of a knife stray but a little, and it will fail to the ruin of all. God's quest stood on the smallest point. A single human woman. All the fate of all the universe rested in that Woman in that moment. A solitary believing girl. Wayne Grudem also speaks of the incarnation, and I will lean heavily on Dr. Grudem's writings. I will quote him without acknowledging it many times throughout this sermon today. Very helpful. He says this It is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible. Far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing even than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself to human nature forever So that infinite God became one person with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery of all the universe. Let's read Hebrews chapter 1 and chapter 2. And allow the sufficiency of Scripture to wash over us and inform us. This is God's Word. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says. He makes his angels wince and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with all of gladness beyond your companions. And you Lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens and the work are the works of you. the heavens are works of your hands they will perish but you remain they will wear out like a garment like a robe you will roll them up like a garment they'll be changed but you are the same and your years will have no end And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Chapter 2, verse 1, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we... Drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to by us to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? the offspring of Abraham therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for because he himself has suffered and tempted He's able to help those, we, here today, who are being tempted. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. Lord, it's just too much. It's it's kind of crazy and absurd to try to... Swallow two chapters. These two chapters, especially. God, we can't, Lord, it is, our brains don't hold it, we can't grasp it, Lord, but but we're asking your help, Lord, that, well, that we can see Jesus. Help us today, See see you, Jesus. By your Spirit, give us illumination. Help me in my weakness, Lord. You know my weakness. They know my weakness. I know my weakness. Lord, help us by your spirit today. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'll never forget the call I got from Suzanne one evening years ago. Came like a bolt of lightning, as bad news often does. Suzanne was the manager I oversaw in a company that I worked for before coming on staff here. Suzanne called to tell me that her father, who was a good swimmer, had been carried out to sea while on vacation and had drowned. What a cruel tragedy. He was in a place of joy and comfort on vacation at the beach. because he was not paying attention he drifted away beyond the reach of help from his wife or from others nearby or even from the lifeguards and he drowned. The writer of Hebrews tells us to pay closer attention to our salvation in these two chapters And he does that by pointing us to know our Lord Jesus Christ better. Often in the New Testament, the chapters are thick with what we should do, what we should not do. We need those things. But it's truly remarkable that in two whole chapters of the Bible here, there's only one commandment and one warning directed to us. Chapters 2, 1 and 3. If you have your Bible open, I recommend you keep it open. Look along with me. Chapters 2, verses 1 through 3. Here's the commandment that we're commanded. Therefore, because of what we just read in chapter 1, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Commented in first service, Bridget may be aware of this. This command here, this this verse. Pay closer attention lest you drift away. Those are nautical terms. Pay closer attention is a language of piloting a ship. Mark well your bearings. Make sure you know where you're steering towards. Lest you drift away. Lest you drift away. The warning is not to neglect our great salvation. These are the dangers for those, the great dangers for those who profess to be Christians. Usually it's not outright apostasy. It's not this kind of sudden, I don't believe this stuff anymore. But apparently it's just a benign, what appears to be a benign neglect. I just don't have time to read my Bible. I just don't have time to pray. It's just too busy, too much going on. That's what leads To the slow drift away from this great salvation. The current trend is some towards deconstruction of their faith by those who were once church members or maybe grew up in the church is often the fruit of this slow drift. Not really having a firm foundation, not really pressing in to know God, not not really hungry for God, just trying to fit in. We want to be liked. You want people to think, okay, he's okay. But before you know it, you're out to sea without the strength to swim back. Here's what remarkable and comforting in these two chapters here. The writer of Hebrews doesn't give us a list of things to do. It's not uh, three steps to a healthy Christian life. No, no. He calls us to survey the glorious truths of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, so that we are filled with worship of the supremacy of God and empowered to enjoy his great salvation, to eagerly obey his commandments, and to receive his tender mercies and compassion in our times of suffering. He says, look to Jesus. So, Let's dive into the glories and in the incarnation and stay safe. Okay? So two points today. Jesus is fully God. Number one. Number two, Jesus is fully man. So let's look at a definition here Dr. Grudem helps us with. Simple, hopefully understandable and, and rememberable. Memorable. He says this, Jesus is fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. That's the incarnation. And we see it in chapter 2, verse 14. If you have your Bible open, look at it with me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery in these two chapters we see that jesus as man is appointed heir of all things chapter 1 verse 2 makes purification for sin chapter 1 verse 3 as the risen god in man was called to sit on the throne of god and give it a much superior name than the angels chapter 1 verses 3 and 4 God prophesied that there was a day of Jesus' birth. Chapter 1, verse 5 and 6 in Psalm 2. Because of his righteous life, Jesus is rewarded with the oil of gladness beyond his companions. CHAPTER One, verse 9, and Psalm 4. As the risen Savior, he is called to sit at God's right hand until he makes his enemies a footstool. CHAPTER One, verse 13, and Psalm 110. Jesus partook of flesh and blood. 214 was made like his brothers In every respect, 2.17. Became a merciful and faithful high priest, 2.17. Suffered temptation, 2.18. Amazingly, Jesus experienced things as a man that he had never and could never experience as God. Some of these things, list a few of them. Jesus had a human mind. Luke 2.52 says that he increased in wisdom. Jesus grew in his understanding. He had to learn things. He had to, his human mind was not omniscient, though his divine mind was. His human mind, he had to learn. Jesus had a human soul and emotions. The night before his crucifixion, Jesus said, my soul is sorrowful, even to death. In Matthew 26:38, Jesus marvelled at the faith of the centurion. Jesus wept uh, elsewhere at the death of Lazarus and was furious at his death. At death. Jesus was distressed, Mark 7:34 tells us. He was surprised. Matthew 8:10 says. Jesus prayed with a heart full of emotions. It says this: In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears. To him was able to save him from death, and he was heard for his reverence. So Jesus had human emotions. Also, he had a human soul that had to mature. Hebrews 5.8 says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus had to learn obedience. His human soul matured. Jesus not, not only had a human body, but he was also born of a virgin. Matthew 1.18 now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Luke 1.35 says it this way, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. So, why a virgin birth? Why was it necessary for Jesus to be born of a virgin? Could God have done it a different way? I don't. Par- apparently not. That's how He did it. The way it's supposed to be done, right? A few thoughts on the virgin birth. Why is the virgin birth necessary? Well, first, salvation ultimately comes from the Lord. This is the offspring or seed promised at the time of the fall of the mankind into sin. The first gospel is shared. God created man and woman in in perfection, sinless perfection in the garden. They sinned and fell. And here at the point of their fall, God speaks to this coming seed. Jesus, the proto-evangelion, the coming evangel, that Jesus will die and destroy Satan. And he says this, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, or your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. God spoke of that salvation in that moment. God alone will save. The virgin birth is the clearest expression of, I can't. God can. Also the virgin birth made possible the uniting of full deity and full humanity in one person. Only through the virgin birth is it possible to have the full uniting of full deity and full humanity in one person. Jesus did not merely have a human body inhabited by divine nature or spirit as some have taught. He wasn't God in a man's suit. Also Jesus was not two distinct persons, a human person and a divine person in one body. Neither were Jesus. Human nature, divine nature somehow synthesized into a new kind of third nature, which was human and divine. Teachings like that, that corrupt and distort this reality of incarnation, plagued the church for generations, for centuries, and plague us Still. Thankfully, around 450 AD, the Council of Chalcedon took on these heresies to provide us with a clear definition of the incarnation. I'll bring a couple of quotes to you, they're a little dense. Ask you to lean in uh, and, and let's try to grasp these things together. The first one is this. It's just part of a longer quote. He says, They say this: the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead, and also perfect in manhood, truly God, and truly man of reasonable meaning rational soul and body, consubstantial, coessential, uh, constant of the same substance, of the same essence with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial of the same substance with us according to manhood. Same substance, same essence of God and the same substance, essence of man. Jesus was as one person. They go on to say this. According to the manhood, one of the same Christ, son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. This God, this Savior, our Lord Jesus, He was God and man inconfusedly, they weren't mixed up or scrambled somehow, unchangeably, He is that way forever, it will never change, indivisibly, you can't separate them out, inseparably, they are together that way and thank God, someday we're in Heaven we will see Jesus, we will see the God-Man who will be that, like that for all eternity. Wow. The distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one substance, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. The glory of the Incarnation ranks alongside the glory and majesty of the Trinity. No wonder the angels worshipped the baby laid in the manger. No wonder the very stars aligned to point to where He was born. No wonder all the Old Testament straying forward to proclaim and understand the Incarnation. And the New Testament shouts to praise the Incarnation. All the old legends and myths of all time groped in the darkness to find this, this desire, this universal hope, this hidden truth that God could reveal Himself to man. That seed is in all human hearts and people invented stories trying to understand it and God revealed it to us through His incarnate. Son, God has become a man. There is... Apologies to to Jace. No analogy or metaphor that can in any way explain this. It is unique in all the universe. The only appropriate response is awe and worship. This is our God. This is why tongues exist. (laughs) You get to a place where you want to worship, but there are no more words left. And so God gives this heavenly language that you can worship in. I'm tempted to speak in tongues right now, but I won't. Another thing, the virgin birth also makes possible Christ's true humanity without inherited sin. Or some call it original sin. The idea of original sin, inherited sin. Okay, so Adam is, Jesus taught us this, Adam is the federal head of all mankind, meaning in Adam, we died when he sinned. We died in Adam. We're descendants of Adam. But Jesus was not descended from Adam. So Jesus as a man did not die in Adam. Hallelujah, right? What about Mary? Right He was born of Mary. Why didn't her sinful nature affect Jesus? Well, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Mary herself was sinless. The Roman Catholic doctrine of the Immaculate Conception holds that Mary was conceived in sinless holiness. And it also teaches that Mary was free from personal sin for her whole life, so she was already holy. And I guess that's why she is worshipped. Sadly, or fortunately I should say, sadly for them, but fortunately the Bible nowhere teaches that. In fact, in the Song of Mary the Magnificat, she calls God her Savior. Mary needed a savior. She was indeed born in sin, was a sinner, needed a savior. But the Holy Spirit in her, when He came over her, prevented that sinfulness from affecting Jesus somehow. Let's read Luke one thirty-five again. The angel said, "The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child we born will be called." Holy, the Son of God. The miracle of that conception, Jesus was shielded. So he didn't have the inherited nature of sin. So, what does this mean? <laughs> Why is this so important? Well, the next point. We've heard this before. Jesus had to be human and sinless to pay for our sins. We've heard this a million times, but we can never hear it enough. Hebrews 4, 14 and 15 says it again a different way, but similarly. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Let's don't drift out to sea on this one. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus did it. In order to pay the price for our sins, Jesus had to be man truly tempted, yet without sinning. But wait a minute. Hold on didn't we just say that Jesus is God? Did I just say that? God can't be tempted with sin. Look at James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. (laughs) Wait a minute. Jesus you're God right yes Jesus is God well you can't be tempted right well here is the marvel of Jesus being fully man and fully God Jesus human nature could be tempted but his divine nature could not be for example when Jesus had fasted for 40 days in the wilderness Satan tempted him to turn stone into bread Although Jesus' human nature in its weakness and hunger was truly tempted, Jesus refused to use his divine nature to satisfy his hunger. Dr. Wellam in his uh, great book, *The God the Son Incarnate, talks about it this way. <clears throat> Through centuries of debate, the consistent witness of the church is that Christ has two wills. Divine will according to his divine nature and a human will according to his human nature. Denying that Christ has a distinct human will and the ability to choose as a man according to it endangers the full humanity of Christ. Indeed, Scripture's entire storyline requires an obedient son who actively obeys as a man and is such. A biblical Christology, study of Christ, requires that the Son wills as God and also wills as man. Only as a man could God be tempted. Jesus only experienced temptation when he became a man. Could, so here's a thought, here's a question, kind of scary. Could Jesus actually have chosen to sin? That would have been it. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly, directly, but we can draw some conclusions. And Dr. Grudem explains it well, better than I would be able to. A little bit of a long quote, so lean in, please. Dr. Grudem says it this way. He says. Jesus refused to rely on His divine nature to make obedience easier for Him. In like manner, it seems appropriate to conclude that Jesus met every temptation to sin not by His divine power, but on the strength of His human nature alone. Though, of course, it was not alone, because Jesus, in exercising the kind of faith that humans should exercise was perfectly depending on God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit at every moment. So going on, the moral strength of his divine nature was there as a sort of backstop that would have prevented him from sinning in any case. And therefore we can say it was not possible for him to sin. But He did not rely on the strength of a divine nature to make it easier for him to face temptations and his refusal to turn the stones into bread at the beginning of his ministry is a clear indication of this. That's crazy. Crazy to my small little mind. Okay, it may be hopefully interesting, but why is it important to us? Well, because of that, we can receive help and deliverance when we are tempted. Hebrews 2.18, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Oh, what comfort. Oh, what comfort. The more we see of his holiness... The more we're aware of our sin those wretched repeated outrageous patterns of sin that we do over and over and over again and we are sinned against over and over and over again even by Christians around us as he says in in chapter 2 at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him but we see him for who for a little while was made lower than the angels Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Are you discouraged by your sin? Are you disappointed because of the sins of those around you? Look to Jesus. Look to him who paid the full price for your sin. Look to Jesus who came for you, who loves you, who forgives you. Look to Jesus. Because he was fully tempted in every way and died as a man for your sins, you will receive help and deliverance when you are tempted. Can you say amen? Amen. It is an absolute fact and truth. Jesus is there every time. When we see our fully God and fully human Savior, we do not lose heart. We do not harden our hearts. We do not despair. We do not walk around under a load of unforgiveness and resentment. Do those things lurk in your heart this morning? Are you discouraged? Are you weary? To Jesus. He will meet you. He will care for you. Trust him. Here's a question for you. Have you ever worried that you'll be able to go for all eternity without sinning. Have you thought about that? I have. I, I I can hardly give ten minutes. I prob, I'm I probably send you preaching to you in some way. Sin in heaven. Could you imagine? You have to live sinless for eternity. I have to. What a comfort we have in our Savior. Jesus was the example of what it will be like in eternity. Someday we will be made wholly righteous. All our wicked, sinful flesh will be gone. And we will have a backstop against sin. Someday this perishable body must put on imperishability, and this mortal body must put on immortality, and we will no longer sin. Why? 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, ch- beloved we are God's children now, and what we, has, what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, what? We shall be like Him. Say it with me. We shall be like him because we will see him as he is. We will not sin. <laughs> we'll have the backstop, Jesus Christ himself, will be our backstop for all eternity. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, Jesus was fully man. And many modern theologians and spiritual people are happy to affirm that Jesus was a man. However, they snicker and scoff at the idea that he was actually God. They hold him as an example of a good man, but deny he was God in the flesh who must be believed in, adored, and obeyed. They would reject that. But scripture clearly teaches that. Point number two, Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully God. Let's look at our definition again of the incarnation. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. What is absolutely, fundamentally, essentially and escapably true of every Christian is that you believe that Jesus was and is God. You cannot be a Christian if you do not believe that. And you cannot be lost if you truly do. Only an infinite God could bear the penalty for all the sins of mankind, all the sins of those who believe in Him. Over and over, the Bible proclaims that salvation is only from the Lord God. Only someone who is truly God and truly man could be the one mediator between God and man. Jesus forever is. God, the Son incarnate. Perhaps his most precise title, God, the Son incarnate. He will always be God, the Son incarnate. 1 John chapter 2, verse 23 says this, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. To confess the Son is to confess that Jesus Christ is God the Son incarnate. Let that be a bedrock for your faith. Never lose sight of that, never neglect that, never look away from that, never drift away from that. That is the foundation of your salvation. Hebrews, chapters 1 and 2 are full of this truth. Let's look at, I'll read some of them to you. Chapter 1, verse 2, though Jesus, through Jesus the world were created. Jesus is the word in John chapter 1. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. Chapter 1, verse 8, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's actually one of the seven direct declarations in the New Testament that Jesus is God. Verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9, Jesus laid the foundations of the earth, the heavens are the works of His hand, and Jesus will never perish. Chapter 1, verse 12, Jesus as God never changes. 2, 10, Jesus is He for whom and by whom all things exist. Jesus, Hebrews, writer of Hebrews, proclaims to us, chapters 1 and 2, is God. As I mentioned throughout the New Testament, seven times in five different books by four different authors, Jesus is proclaimed to be God, Theos in the Greek, God very God. Let's read these seven verses. Let me read them to you. Let this truth settle deeply in your heart. John chapter 1 verse 1 In the beginning was the word And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was the Word made flesh. Jesus was the Word. When God said in Genesis chapter 1, Let there be light, Jesus was acting there, the eternal, ever ever God. When it says He's the firstborn of all creation, it doesn't mean He he was firstborn. It means He is the preeminent Lord over all creation. John 1.18, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. The only God, Jesus, has made the Father known. John 20, 28, Thomas, seeing the risen Savior, cries out, My Lord and my God. He is not rebuked or reproved or corrected. He appropriately was worshiping God. God. Apostle Paul in Romans 9, 5 says this, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God. Overall, blessed forever. Amen. Titus 2, speaking of those who have received grace, says that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter speaking, writing, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. His very righteousness of our God and Savior is what saves us. And seventh, our verse in Hebrews that we read earlier, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Hmm. To all that, we can only say, Behold our God seated on the throne, come, let us adore him. Behold our King, nothing can compare. Come, let us adore him. Please stand with me while we pray and respond. Lord God, Jesus, Lord, our Savior and King, our holy righteous God, the Son incarnate, we worship you. Father, we worship you. Holy Spirit, we worship you. You are great works you have done. Thank you for your words. Thank you for this reality that is ballast. It is a foundation. It is a rock. It is an anchor for ourselves. Lord, may it go down firmly. May we pay closer attention to it, lest we not drift. May we press into you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.